So something that you will notice about me soon is that I will try to start up at this pulpit and speak to you all from there, and then I, I won't. <laughs> I will come back down here. Um, <laughs> so uh, if that causes problems in seeing or hearing, feel free to let me know, but otherwise I, I'll probably always end up back down here. Our scripture reading for this morning is from Isaiah 43, verses 16 through 21. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people who I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I had you all submit questions. Uh, my intention this morning is to give you all the chance to get to know a little more about me, because I can't ask you to trust my leadership if you don't know who I am. But I do want to start by actually saying a few words about Isaiah and change and making a way in the wilderness. This passage in Isaiah comes at a time where God's people are feeling adrift from God. They are under the oppressive government of Babylon. The tasks of the prophet to rebuild is not just a city and physical structures, but it's the identity of God's own people to reassure them that no matter what the government does to them, God is taking care of them and will continue to show them a way through the darkness. This God who is trying to lead them into the new thing is calling up through Isaiah this imagery of Exodus this foundational story for the people of Israel. There is a purpose in the similarities between Isaiah 43 and the miraculous rescue of the people in Exodus 14. The prophet is trying to invoke this important cultural memory of the dramatic story of redemption that we find in Egypt. And so it's interesting that the prophet, who has gone to so much effort to invoke the past, then says, do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. This is surprising. And it's supposed to get the people's attention because the prophet wants people to do more than just wish for the good old days. I remember when. Well, you know the way he used to do it was. <laughs> it is not on the past as the past that the prophet wants people to concentrate. He is trying to create an imaginative space in the minds of the people so that their conception of the past can transform their understanding of the present and the future. I am about to do a new thing. It springs forth. Do you not perceive it? In a seemingly hopeless situation, the prophet calls on the people not to lose heart, but to look with anticipation for the signs of God's approaching redemption, to be open to the new thing that is coming. 
my faith journey has always been deeply rooted in the legacies and in the stories that I have the honor of stepping into as a pastor. But I am always looking for the new thing that God is doing. One of the worst things that you can say to me is, well, but we used to always do it that way. (laughs) Tell me why it matters to you. Tell me what about it fed your soul. Tell me what's important in it. And that, that I will care deeply about. But before I get into the deep details of my philosophies of being a leader, let me share the basics. I was born here in Boise, Idaho. I grew up going to Hillview United Methodist Church, uh, one of those overly uh, active families in the church. My mom was the Christian education coordinator. I served on the district committees for youth. I went to college in Salem, Oregon at Willamette University, worked for a while and then realized mostly against my will, that I was called into ministry. (laughs) Went to Drew Theological in northern New Jersey, and then uh, from there moved to Arizona, first Tucson and then Phoenix, to serve as an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church. I moved back to Boise in March of 2020. It was a very chill time to make a big life change, nothing else happening in the world. Uh, I moved back for a lot of reasons that I'll talk a little bit more about later, but my family, my parents are still here, uh, and it's a joy for me to be closer to them. Um, Unfortunately, that does mean I also have to help take care of my dad when he's recovering from knee surgery, but it's part of why I'm here, and I'm glad to be here. Uh, I was a west side of Boise kid, so I went to Centennial High School. Um, It's still Boise, despite people trying to tell me that it's not just almost Meridian. I now own a house and I live with my dog, Mikey. You will hear much about him, he is wonderful. Um, he, is, he is just the sweetest of boys. I, nobody was uh, bold enough to ask this, but I will answer, uh, I am not married. Um, I you know, keep putting finding a husband on my to-do list and it just like falls down. So we'll see, someday I'll get around to it. Um, I'm 40, which is not a question people submitted, but also information for you all to have because people usually want to know. So one of the questions that came in was so impossibly difficult that I probably spent the most time on it. And that was the last book that I loved and the last book that I hated. And you probably couldn't know that that would be the hardest question to ask me, but I spent a lot of time thinking this through. Actually, the last book I hated was probably pretty easy. It was Verity by Colleen Hoover. Um, She and I, if you know of her work, uh, don't vibe uh, author to reader, and that is okay. (laughs) But something that is true about me is that at any given time, I'm reading two to three books. I try to keep two of them for fun, and then one of them is a business book or some sort of thing that makes me sound smart in the world, I guess. (laughs) I am reading a great management book, but I will not say that I love it. Uh, It is helpful, and if you want to learn how to be more effective operationally, I'll happily recommend it later, but right now I am rereading the second Crescent City novel by Sarah J. Moss. I love it. I do recommend, if you want some nonsense fun, the Sarah J. Moss books are it. And then I'm reading Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner. It's a beautiful memoir. Um, I highly recommend. It is going to be a sharp tone turn 
from Crescent City. Um, it is sad and it is moving and it is beautiful and uh, I am very glad to be reading it. If you ask me in three weeks what book I love, it will be an entirely different answer. Somebody also asked uh, the theologians um, that matter to me, the theologians that have really guided me. And this was another one that I, I, I had to spend some time on. Um, you know, what gives sort of the best reflection of who I am. And so the first theologian that I want to share is Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman's amazing work, especially through the civil rights movement, gave the spiritual undergirding to the most important movement in our history. And Howard Thurman is somebody who inspires me for so many reasons. He is who Martin Luther King Jr. sought out after he was stabbed and almost died the first time. And Thurman said to him, your work matters, but so does your rest. And you need to stop and you need to heal. And Thurman received criticism for not being upfront enough as an activist. He wasn't leading the marches, but he was providing the theological base and the spiritual center for the movement. And I think he reminds me that in all things, we might want to be the loudest voice, but being the person who says we need prayer and rest and healing is incredibly important as well. And then my childhood pastor, Jim Hewlett, often quoted Georgia Harkness. And so her name and her theological influence were really embedded in me because he loved her work so much. And so a few years ago, mom did the thing that moms sometimes do to their adult children, which was give me about five boxes of stuff she'd kept and said, go through this, I don't want it anymore. <laughs> and I found a letter that Pastor Jim had written to me when I was a kid wrestling with really deep faith doubt. And in what he sent to me and the fact that I kept it and it meant so much to me, I think you'll understand what kind of seven-year-old I was and what kind of adult I've grown up to be. So he quoted Georgia Harkness when he said, no intelligent person would believe all he reads in the newspaper, including the claims of the patent medicine advertisements to cure all ailments. So in religion, one must use discretion not supposing that the demands of faith require him to believe everything that may be set forth in pious words. This is from her work, The Reasonableness of Faith. And when I read the full work as an adult, I was inspired anew by her courage in questioning her faith while always returning back to her belief. It is faith that enables us to have eyes to see and ears to hear, she writes. And so her words give me confidence to continue as a lifelong questioner and a person of deep, abiding, and constantly transforming faith. Which then leads me to the questions about my journey up to this point. So where was I before I came to you all? I have, for the past three years, been serving as the executive director of Boise Valley Habitat for Humanity, building affordable housing throughout Ada County, and I love my work there. Before that, I was in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, Mesa, Arizona, serving a United Methodist Church there in Mesa, and before that in Tucson. And so my journey is a little bit interesting because I was very sure that I was done with church ministry when I left Arizona. Uh, Arizona was, for me, leaving there was a career change. I was looking for a way I could still serve my community, but I knew for sure that it was not going to be in a church. 
Now, I'm not quite dumb enough to ever say never. I do know better than that. But I was so sure that I surrendered my credentials. I said, I no longer want to be ordained. For me, and again, this is a longer conversation, uh, being that tied to the United Methodist Church, or really that tied to any system, is probably never going to uh, suit me well. It, it was not a healthy relationship, the United Methodist Church and I, when I left. And for my healing and for my journey, it made the most sense to say, I love the church and I love God, and that has never been in question, but our relationship is done. And so I was very done. I was happy to come preach when people needed it. I enjoyed attending church as somebody who didn't have to get up and do everything. I was so very done until Jenny invited me out for a drink. <laughs> and said, we have some changes coming and we'd really like to talk to you about it. Somebody asked what changed, well, me neither, either, Siri, come on. <laughs> what changed for me that inspired my return to ministry, and honestly, and this isn't just so you guys will like me, it was this church. It was this church that does this work in the community that made me say, you know what, I could see myself coming back. I knew that I wasn't done with ministry. Um, I often say that I surrendered my credentials to the United Methodist Church. I did not surrender my ordination to God. God and I were both very clear that I was still meant for ministry, and I just didn't know what that would look like. I had a transformational moment doing a funeral of a beloved friend um, last August. It was really painful, and I realized in that moment that the role of pastor that my ability to be the voice of, of God in that moment to those people who were so desperately hurting, that that mattered, and that I still had that calling. And I still didn't know what that would mean. I was not signing back up to like jump back on into the Methodist church, and then Jenny called me. And this community is special. This community, to me, is living out what a church is supposed to be. It is a church that loves each other, and it is a church that loves the world around it. And you all don't make it actually much more complicated than that. Every part of this property being used to serve the community and to offer God's love through service, that is something that is unique and it is rare, and I couldn't pass up the opportunity to be part of it. I don't think that there's really another church maybe in the country, that could have called me back into ministry. But I'm really, really glad that this one did. I think that's, to me, what I am so excited about in this journey. Because you all are so willing to just be God's love. And I cannot wait to be a part of that. But I know that change is hard. You all had an amazing pastor before me. Pastor Joe is an incredible leader for you all. And change is difficult and people are nervous about it. And so there were a few practical questions that I am happy to answer. The first is if I will continue the Zoom service. Absolutely. I do not see any reason I would not do that. Um, I think we always have to ask what are the barriers that keep people from participating in our community. And we have to look at how we eliminate those barriers. I think Zoom is a great way for people who live far away or who you know, aren't feeling well or whatever reason keeps you from coming and joining us in person, I'm glad that you're here. And I don't have any desire to make it so that you can't be. The next question was a tough one. 
which is how will I provide individual ministry in addition to church organization, preaching, and another full-time job? It's a fair question. This is a quarter-time appointment. Um, I have a full-time job that is quite busy. And so I want to talk a little bit about the history of the United Methodist Church. So we have a model of itinerant ministry. Our pastors move around. Uh, and I actually think that's a good and beautiful thing. I can extol the virtues of that again at another time. But it really comes from our history of our pastors riding horseback from church to church. So sometimes a church would go months without having an ordained elder present. And so the pastor would show up, you know, after six months, they would do all of the funerals, all of the weddings, all of the baptisms, and then they would do communion. But the rest of the time, it was up to the community to care for each other. They formed small groups. That is the pillar of United Methodism, is the holiness groups, where they would gather together, they would study the Bible, but they would care for one another. They would do the visiting. They would know who was sick. They would bring the food and arrange the care. It has always been the work of the people to do that individualized ministry and that care. I think one of the things that professionalized pastors took away from community is that responsibility to care for each other. And so I want to have ongoing conversations with you all about how can we do care together? What can that look like that we do it together? Because you're right if you're questioning how am I going to do all of that. The answer is I'm not. I can't. Um, but we can. We can care for each other. We can support each other. The other really important piece is going to be super clear communication. Because I am not here at the church all the time, because I am not attending all of the choir practices and Bible studies and uh, United, gosh, it's not United Methodist Women anymore. United Women in Faith gatherings, you know, um, because I am not present for all of that, I'm not going to know the needs of the community. My psychic abilities that people sometimes want from their pastor are even less as a quarter-time pastor. And so I'm going to need you all to be really clear with what you need. If you know that you're going in for a procedure and you want your pastor to come pray with you, I need you to ask me and let me know when it is, and then I will do everything I can to make sure that Jenny or I are there. But it's going to require that clarity, really saying, this is what I need. I need prayer. I need visit. Sometimes it can be hard to communicate those things, and so that's another thing. We're going to try to try out some different methods. How can we make sure that we're hearing about those needs and then responding to them? I don't want anyone to feel left behind or ignored or abandoned, and so I'm going to need everyone's help in making sure that we can all hear each other's needs and care for them. It's also going to just take some time to figure it out. I don't really know what it's going to look like because I haven't done this before. Um, and so I ask you know, for the support in that as well. What am I most excited about ministry-wise as we move forward together as a family? It is an honor for me to serve a church that voted to become reconciling. I think it is a powerful statement to the world about the way that we love one another. Uh, I think I am most excited to see what the next step of offering God's radical love looks like because it doesn't stop with that. That is one step. That is one community. That is one way of saying that we welcome people here. But what else can it look like? 
a lot of churches claim to love their neighbor, but I think Collister over and over again proves through your actions, with your big declarations and your small acts, that you actually mean it. And so I believe that we are a voice that the community is longing for, and so I'm excited to be a part of amplifying it. People need to know that there is a place where they will be safe and they will be loved. I believe that we are that place, and I can't wait to see the ways that that continues to unfold. If I look toward my eventual departure, what would my legacy be? This is hard. But I think that I want to ignite a new passion in each one of you and in us as a community as a whole. I want you to find your absolute passion for working with refugees or for worship music or for altar decorating or for advocating for affordable housing. I know some great organizations you could work with. <laughs> I want to inspire you all to come alive in new ways and then to take that fire out into the world. I want to know enough about all of you that we can unlock that place that God is calling you. Because Jenny and I were not the only ones that God has called into ministry just because we have it officially. God is calling all of us. And so what is that thing that God has planted in your soul and how do I help cultivate it? And then finally, the most important question, what is my favorite flavor of ice cream? The answer was very easy. Haagen-Dazs, white chocolate raspberry truffle for special occasions, and Rocky Road the rest of the time. Behold, I am doing a new thing. This is a wonderful and very necessary word for the church to hear in this current age when there is so much change and upheaval, not just in this community, but in this city and in this world. The character of God, though, has not changed. God's grace and power have sustained us in the past and will see us through the present and guide us into the future. When I was looking into this passage, I found a poem called A Homecoming by Wendell Berry. Mm -hmm. In the trust of old love, cultivation shows a dark and graceful wilderness at its heart. Wild in that wilderness, we roam the distance of our faith safe beyond the bounds of what we know. O oh, love open, show me my country, take me home. Safe beyond the bounds of what we know is as apt a description of faith journey as any that I have ever heard. In times of uncertainty and fear, and uncertainty and fear Isaiah 43 urges us to be alert for the signs of God's continued presence, working to sustain and redeem us even to this day. And as we gather as a community, opening our hearts to the presence of God at the communion table, we get to live out what is new and what is happening. We get to open our hearts to it. We are going to, uh, in just a moment, begin uh, the words of communion. An important thing to know is that communion in the United Methodist Church is open to all. We place no restrictions on who can come to the table. We just ask that you come with an open heart that is earnestly seeking God, or maybe just one that's ready to open to God. We invite you. There is gluten-free communion available. I will be holding it. Uh, that is another thing to know about me, is that I am gluten-free. Um, so I will do my best to always make sure that we have an option uh, if you need that as well.
And so, my friends, I invite you to join now in the words of communion.